It is Christmas season, and I know you're all getting your shopping done and doing all of the wonderful things that you get to do this time of year. And uh, thank you from all of our staff, on behalf of all of our staff, our church is so kind to the staff that work here uh, at this time of the year. Thank you for cards and gifts and food and all of the stuff that you do. Uh, we all appreciate it. Uh, you make us... Uh, you make us happier and fatter and everything else that you do. Thank you for that. It's wonderful. Tonight, my subject is foretold, the prophecy of Christmas, foretold. And I want to start here, one of the most familiar Christmas uh, passages that we read at this time of the year, Matthew chapter 1. The Bible says, now all this was done, notice this next phrase, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, and here's one of those prophecies, a prophecy of Christmas. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now, the Bible that we read from and study it is different than the many other religious books you can find in this world. The Bible contains some 2,000 prophecies that have either been fulfilled or are being fulfilled right now without any error. The Bible is literally history written in advance. Now, there are still a few people in our world, they're getting fewer every year, but there are still a few people today who make the claim that Jesus never existed, or if he did, uh, he was some kind of mythical character. And, uh, but, but those who make that claim are getting fewer and fewer every year, and they're certainly not historians. No historian worth their salt would tell you that Jesus never lived or never existed. Those folks are simply ignorant of the facts. Besides the New Testament, which is the best documented book of any age, in antiquity especially, Several other sources also mention Jesus, not just the New Testament, but the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, the Roman historians Cornelius Tacticus, uh, Suetonius, and Pliny the Younger. So they all mention uh, Jesus among others. In fact, we know more about the life of Jesus than just about any other figure in the ancient world. His birth, his life, his death, are revealed to us in much more detail than most other ancient figures that we just take their existence for granted, and so do historians. And yet we have much more detail about Jesus than any of them. Now, the vast majority of people are not in the camp that says Jesus never existed. The vast majority of people are in this camp. I'm smart enough to know that Jesus actually existed, but maybe they're still in the dark as to who Jesus actually really was. The titles Messiah and teacher and prophet and miracle worker and son of man, they're wonderful, but they don't fully describe who Jesus was. For Jesus was Jehovah God, the creator of all the ages robed in a body of flesh. As the scripture said that we just read, he was literally God with us. And when the apostles began preaching, they cited two areas to prove to the people that they were preaching to that Jesus of Nazareth was God come in the flesh. Two areas they always quoted. 
They always cited, they always referenced. The first was his resurrection. Obviously, if somebody can raise themselves from the dead, you just go with whatever they say. And that's what they did. They proved to the people in their preaching, this Jesus is who he said he was because just look at all the witnesses. He rose from the dead and there's still many people alive that saw that and heard about that. And so that's the first area. But then there was another area that they quoted and referenced and cited just as often. And that was the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled the scripture over and over and over again. They said that in their preaching and teaching. Now Jesus himself often stressed that the events of his life were the fulfillment of what the prophets had written. And that's exactly why when you look at Matthew's gospel, which was written to the Jewish people, Matthew often says, Jesus did this, Jesus said this, that it might be fulfilled. He's referencing the Old Testament and using it to prove that Jesus is who he said he was. Now, the fact that Jesus fulfilled <clears throat> so many prophecies with 100% accuracy proves two things. Number one, there is a divine author behind this book called the Bible. And number two, Jesus was exactly who he said he was, almighty God in a body of flesh. And so tonight I want to take a look at the prophecy that led up to Christmas. And uh, we're just going to take a bird's eye view. We're going to go fairly quickly. I'm not going to hold you here for a long time. You could spend a lifetime studying this. I want to give you a bird's eye view tonight. Here are some of the prophecies, some of the statements that were made foretelling the birth of Jesus. Number one, he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah the prophet spoke this one, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That was fulfilled, brothers and sisters, in the text that we read tonight where Matthew said, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew interprets it for us. Emmanuel means literally God with us. God came to us. God lived among us. He was God with us. That's one prophecy. He would be born of a virgin. Here's another prophecy. The Bible talked about him being a descendant of King David. Jeremiah prophesied this one. He said, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will raise unto David a righteous branch and a king is coming out of the line of David. A king shall reign and prosper. He will execute judgment and justice in the earth. He's not just going to be a regional or national king of Israel. He's going to execute judgment and justice in the whole earth. This is Jeremiah's prophecy. When the Messiah comes, he'll be a descendant of King David. We read in Luke, he shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And this is the angel's statement. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. We're two for two. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy as well. Now here's an unusual prophecy that a lot of people miss. This goes all the way back to the beginning chapters of your Bible. It's the first book in your Bible when Jacob is blessing his sons. 
And here's what he says about Judah. Genesis chapter 49. The scepter, the power, the authority, the, the ability to rule oneself and govern your own affairs as a nation. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Judah will always govern his own affairs. He'll have wars and battles. He'll be conquered and he'll fight back. And Judah will always have authority over his own tribe, his own nation, until Shiloh come. The glory of God in a body of flesh, the Messiah. Until Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, Judah will not have a scepter. Judah will not have a lawgiver. And unto Messiah shall the gathering of the people be. There's an obscure sign about the Messiah that when Messiah comes, it will be at a time when Israel doesn't even govern their own nation politically. Now you know the end of this story. When Jesus was being crucified before Pilate, uh, Pilate said, go take him, do what you want with him. And they said, we don't have any power to crucify anybody. Only Rome can give us that authority. But here's something earlier. Luke says, it came to pass in those days, we read this every Christmas, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That affected Israel because at this time in their history, at the time that Messiah came, there was no scepter in Judah. Caesar held the scepter. Rome held the scepter. And so that was a detailed prophecy that Israel would be occupied, controlled by, governed by a foreign power at the time of the birth of the Messiah. We are now three for three. Here's another prophecy that's a little obscure Jeremiah prophesied this one. It's tragic. Jeremiah said that when the Messiah comes, <clears throat> because of his birth, there will actually be a massacre of children when Messiah comes. Jeremiah 31. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children, because they were not. That's the prophecy. Now, if you read in Matthew chapter two, you'll actually read Matthew referring to that. In fact, he quotes that prophecy and he tells us what the fulfillment of that prophecy was. That when the wise men came and asked Herod, where is this one that is born king of the Jews? Herod went into an insane, jealous rage and he plotted to kill and did kill every baby under the age of two. Look at this, Matthew 2, 16. Then Herod, when he saw he was mocked of the wise men because they went home a different way, they didn't come back and give a report, he was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and he slew all the children that were in Bethlehem in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Why two years old and under? Because by the time the wise men followed that star from the far east, Jesus was not in a manger. Jesus was in a house. You read your Bible in the Gospel of Matthew. So Herod took every young boy under the age of two and literally sacrificed them. And that fulfilled a grotesque, a brutal prophecy, but a prophecy nonetheless. That when the Messiah is born, there will be a massacre of children because of his birth. 
we're now four for four. We read in Hosea, this prophecy, that the Messiah would actually spend a season of his life in the nation of Egypt, just a picture of what God did for Israel in the Old Testament in bringing them out of Egypt. Here we go, Hosea chapter 11, verse one. When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. Again, Matthew quotes that prophecy exactly and then tells us how it was fulfilled. After the massacre, because Herod's still on the throne, it's dangerous. And an angel says to Joseph to get up and take your little family, Mary and this baby, and get out of here. And so guess where Joseph goes? He takes Jesus and Mary into Egypt. And look at this, Matthew 2 and 15. And he was there until the death of Herod. Why? That it might be fulfilled. This is prophecy coming in like an airliner landing on a runway, just following the lights. This is prophecy. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Prophecy fulfilled in the birth of the Messiah. Isn't it amazing to watch how God unfolds this? His word is precious and powerful, but more than that, folks, it's accurate. Every word, it never falls to the ground. Are you thankful for the word of the Lord? I know it's Bible study, and uh, I know I've got my, uh, my winter frog in my throat. So I'd like to just kind of get rid of him for a second. So if you just worship the Lord, give me about 30 seconds. That'd be really good. And you'd get to do something that actually mattered. Thank you for that little golf clap and that little rumble. But I wish you'd lift up praise to the Messiah because we know who he is. Thank you, Jesus. I don't know if that'll do any good, but I'll take it. Thank you. Here's another prophecy. The Bible teaches us in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 that when the Messiah comes, he would have a forerunner. There would be somebody coming before him to announce him. Here's Isaiah. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And again, it falls to Matthew to tell us about the ministry of John the Baptist. Luke does the same thing. And when they record the ministry of John the Baptist, here's what they do. They reach back to the prophecy of Isaiah and say, John is fulfilling that. Here's what John said himself. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but I'm just the forerunner. There's somebody coming after me and he's mightier than I ever thought of being. I'm not even worthy to get down on my hands and knees and unloose his shoes. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. The one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. There was an earlier sign of that. You know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. It was in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, a miraculous pregnancy, by the way. 
John the Baptist was not virgin born, but he was born of a very old couple. So it was a miracle. And, and so John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. And when Mary, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, when she went to visit her cousin, probably to get out of sight because she's scandalous in the eyes of everybody. Nobody believes that Jesus is virgin born. And she is being scandalized and criticized. And so probably she goes to her cousin Elizabeth to get out of sight. But the moment Mary, now carrying the Christ child, walks into the presence of her older cousin Elizabeth, the baby, six months along in Elizabeth's womb, leaped for joy just to be in the presence of the Messiah. John wasn't just a forerunner when he was 30 years old preaching in the wilderness. John was a forerunner when he was in his mother's womb. That baby was born for one purpose and that was to point the world to the one that comes after who is mightier than I. The Messiah would have a forerunner. That's a sign. And then the prophet said this, Isaiah also spoke and said, there shall come forth out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So a rod is gonna come out of the stem of Jesse and a branch is going to grow out of his roots. Now the word branch in Hebrew is netzer. And netzer is the same root as another word you're familiar with. And that is Nazareth or Nazarene. And the Bible in the Old Testament, through many voices, prophesied that Jesus would be referred to as a netzer, as a Nazarene, or as a branch. Uh, you remember Nathaniel, when he heard about Jesus, here's what he said. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Because netzer, Nazareth, meant something that is lowly and despised. Netzer is the same root as the word Branch, branch, Nazarene, Nazareth, Netzer, the same word. And so this is why Matthew says in 2.23, Jesus came, or Joseph came rather, and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Why? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. Jesus shall be called a Nazarene, a Netzer. He was rejected. That's Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of there? But not only that, he was the branch that came out of the root of David. So he's a Nazarene. Notice that Matthew doesn't say one prophet said this. Matthew said many prophets say this. The prophets said this. Many prophets said that he would be rejected. Many prophets said that he would be a branch. And so Jesus is called a Nazarene or a Netzer or a branch by many prophets. And the prophecy is fulfilled. Let me do one more and we'll move on. You know this when we sing about it every Christmas, we preach about it every Christmas. The Bible said in Micah chapter five and verse two, thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, this Bethlehem, there are two at the time of Jesus' birth. This Bethlehem is so small that a couple of times in the Old Testament when they're listing all the cities in Judah, they don't even list it, it's so tiny. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. 
He will be born in Bethlehem. There are two Bethlehems. You could be 50% wrong easily. But the prophet zeroed in and said, he's gonna be born in this particular Bethlehem. And sure enough, Matthew records, when Jesus was born in the littlest Bethlehem, in the tiny insignificant Bethlehem, in the Bethlehem that is so tiny that they don't even include it in the census a couple of times in the Old Testament when they're listing every town and every village and every city. They don't even list it, it's so small. But Jesus was born there with pinpoint accuracy. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And so again, prophecy is so accurate. How can a person predict or influence or manipulate the place they're born? They can't. But Jesus did because he was God Almighty in a body of flesh. The prophecy of Christmas. There were 332 Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. 332. And they were all fulfilled. 332 in the life of Jesus Christ. These prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Jesus fulfilling even a handful of them, let alone all of them, is absolutely impossible. Now, we've identified just eight prophecies, and because it's Christmas, we took eight prophecies surrounding his birth. Many years ago now, back in the 40s actually, Peter Stoner was the chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College. And he was passionate about biblical prophecies, this brilliant, educated man. He took 600 students from the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and Dr. Stoner took those students through this procedure. They looked at eight specific prophecies of the Messiah, just like we have tonight. The only difference being they looked at prophecies that impacted his whole life. They just took eight. We took eight tonight, but we used specifically Christmas ones. Now, they, they, they worked on probability. They came up with extremely conservative probabilities for each one being fulfilled. What are the chances of that? And they'd look at the population of Israel and they'd look at the chances of that and they'd assign a number and they made sure it was extremely conservative so that the study could not be uh, just kind of criticized and blasted out of the water. And they considered the likelihood. How likely is it that a man named Jesus would fulfill all eight of the prophecies that we looked at. Now, tonight we did eight Christmas prophecies. They did eight prophecies from anywhere in his life. And Dr. Stoner later wrote about this in his manuscript called Science Speaks. It's, it's fascinating. And the conclusion of his research was absolutely staggering. The prospect that any person could possibly satisfy those eight prophecies was just one chance in 10 to the 17th power. That is 10 followed by 17 zeros. It's, it's amazing. Now, I came tonight equipped for this season of the year. It's winter. It's Christmas. I have my Christmas cold, <clears throat> which is irritating some of you. 
And some of you are in intercession because you think pastor must be in agony and he's not. No, you are in agony listening to this raspy throat. It doesn't hurt. But I am equipped in other ways too. I have my toque. You can't be in New Brunswick in winter and not have a toque. Most people in the world don't know what a toque is. They don't need to know what a toque is. But we are so abundantly blessed here. They think if you talk about your toque, you are smoking something. Especially if you have one of those strange New Brunswick accents. They might think that. I also have something very Canadian. I have 10 loonies. There is nothing more Canadian than a loony. <laughs> Unless it be Tim Hortons or poutine. But I have 10 loonies, and this would be to buy Tim Hortons. And you can't, you know, be Canadian without having some loonies once in a while. Especially if you're a pastor. You have coin loonies. Never mind. <clears throat> and I also have my Air Canada blindfold for shutting out everybody else on the plane. I fly so much. I have dozens of these. I give them to Beverly. She uses them at night when she sleeps. Now, me, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I want to look at my beloved and bask in her beauty, but apparently... <clears throat> I'm not making any further comment. So since I have come equipped for Canada and winter and Bible study tonight, I, I want to take my 10 loonies and I want to put them in my Canadian toque. Oh, and by the way, one of these loonies, please don't tell Queen Elizabeth. One of these loonies is marked specially. Um, it is black on both sides, colored in with a Sharpie. Don't tell Donald Trump either. Okay, so. So they are mixed up in my toque, okay? So we have 10 uh, loonies and one of them is marked and we have a, a blindfold and we have some esteemed young men here on the front row. Now, there are 10 loonies in here, one of which is marked and Here's how this would work. If one of these men reach into this toque, blindfolded, and uh, they pull out the right one, the chances of that happening are what? One in? Ten. Okay, so let's try this. Okay. Bro, you're always here in the front. That's a dangerous place to sit, and that's why all those people sit in the very back. See that? But go ahead. Stand up here with me. I'm going back there next, so it's okay. Okay, so you just reach over, and I want you to reach in this toque. You got, you got to come up here. Okay, and I just want you to pick out one coin. And let me see. And he didn't get it because the odds of that happening are one in ten, so that's not great odds. Okay, thank you, bro. I'll take my blindfold back. My wife will need it. <laughs> Greg DeMerchant, I need your help. <clears throat> Can we get him on camera? I just want to get him on camera. That's all I want. Thank you, Brandon. 
a close-up. Greg, stand up here for me. You can kill me later. I know, I'm going to get it later. But if you pick out the black loony, I'll let you take Charlene out for coffee after. Okay, there you go. I'll even give you the loony. No, see, he couldn't do it. Because the odds, thank you, Greg. Because the odds, just make sure you get a close-up here with us. There you go. I just, just, that's great. No wonder these guys couldn't do it because the odds of them doing it are only one in ten. That's not, that's not great odds. Uh, some of you are hoping I'll pass these out. But since I stole them from the church general fund, actually that's not true. I stole them from Eric Porter. He's good for it. If you mark one toony, one loony, one coin, and you, you, you blindfold a man and you ask him to pick it out, the odds are one in ten that he can do that. Obviously, that doesn't really work that well. Now, suppose that you could take 10 to the 17th power, that number of coins. 10 to the 17th power. That's what we said that Jesus, the odds of him fulfilling eight prophecies that we read in one man, in the life of one man, the odds are 10 to the 17th power. So if you could take the same number of coins, dollar coins, 10 followed by 17 zeros. That's one quintillion. If you could take that number of coins and you could lay them, here's what Dr. Stoner said, lay them on the face of the state of Texas. The state of Texas is nearly 270,000 square miles. That's getting close to 700,000 square kilometers. If you could do that, 10 to the 17th power with just these coins, they would cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now, you take the same guys and you blindfold them and you say, you can walk anywhere you want in the state of Texas. And when you get to whatever spot you want in the state of Texas... You reach down, you can shuffle around, you can dig through two feet deep, and you pick out one coin, and you get the one that is marked black on both sides. What chance would he have in getting the right coin if they covered the state of Texas two feet deep? He would have exactly the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing eight specific prophecies over hundreds of years and having them all come true in one person. One in one quintillion. Later in his career, Dr. Stoner taught at Westmount College and he did the same sort of calculation, but this time, instead of using eight prophecies, they used 48 prophecies. And he and his students came to the, quote, extremely conservative estimate that the chances of Jesus or anyone else fulfilling 48 prophecies would be 10 to the 157th power or 10 followed by 157 zeros. 
But Jesus didn't just fulfill eight prophecies and Jesus didn't just fulfill 48 prophecies. Jesus fulfilled all 332 Old Testament prophecies. It's impossible unless it's God. It's impossible unless this is a supernatural, divinely inspired book. It is totally categorically impossible. There are so many prophecies. I don't have time. His ministry would bring light to the Gentiles. Isaiah prophesied it. Matthew said it's fulfilled. He would speak in parables. Psalm 78 prophesied it. Matthew said it's fulfilled. He would be praised by little children. Psalm 8 verse 2. You know that that happened when he came into the city in the triumphal entry. He would be betrayed by a friend. The price of his betrayal would be used to buy a potter's field. He would be rejected by his own people. He would would be falsely accused. He would be silent before his accusers. He would be spit upon and struck. That was Isaiah 50. He would be crucified with criminals. That was Isaiah 53. He would be given vinegar to drink. That's Psalm 69. His hands and feet would be pierced. That's Psalm 22 written hundreds of years before crucifixion ever existed. Soldiers would gamble for his garments. Psalm 22. Soldiers would pierce his side. Zechariah 12 10. His bones would not be broken. Exodus 12 and Psalm 34. He would be buried with the rich. Isaiah 53 and he would resurrect from the dead prophesied everywhere. That is the Jesus that we worship. That is the Jesus who came to earth at this wonderful time of the year. We celebrate it every year but don't forget how astounding it is. Don't forget how miraculous it is this is the prophecy of Christmas for heaven's sake how much control does a person have over the events that surround their death how much control does a person have over the events that take place after their death no control but Jesus did it was lined out by the prophets and fulfilled this one's amazing Daniel even prophesied that the Messiah would be announced to his people 483 years after the decree came to rebuild Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Look, look at this. This is amazing. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, so that's our marker, unto the Messiah the Prince, and now he gives two numbers that we add up. Shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Three score is 20. So seven plus uh, 62. So 69 in total. Why does he break it up? Watch this. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. That's, that's where the break happens. So Daniel just prophesied to us, if I can put it in modern English, the word here where we read weeks in the English is heptads, in the Hebrew, and it means sevens. And so it's actually seven years, heptads, not seven weeks. So, so, so literally, and you can check that out in any Bible dictionary, any, any, any kind of concordance, you can check that out. So here's what Daniel just said to us. From the moment that the commandment is given, you can come back home, you can rebuild Jerusalem. From that marker until the Messiah gets here, is going to be seven weeks. Seven times seven is how much? You're all scared now. Nobody wants to say. 
Somebody say 49. And that's exactly what happened. 49 years later, the street and the wall were built even though it was troublous times. So that's a, an intermediate marker. And then three score and two weeks, that's another 62 times seven years. So if you add all that up, you've got 49 plus um, 62 times seven. You end up with, you can do the math, you end up with 483 years. 483. Now here's what's amazing. That prophecy that the Messiah would appear 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, you study that out. It happened 483 years later on the exact day of the Jewish calendar. Jesus rode into Jerusalem 483 years later on the very day that the command had been given to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. The multitudes, Matthew said, the multitudes went before and they followed, they cried, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 483 years earlier, they had been celebrating. We get to go back to Jerusalem and we get to rebuild our city. It was timed on the Jewish calendar to the exact day of the year, 400 and 83 years later. This business that we preach, this prophecy that we read, this Christmas message that we celebrate, this is no little tiny thing that some kind of religious tradition, the prophets of old spoke this into existence and Jesus came on the scene and fulfilled like clockwork 332 prophecies. It's amazing and astounding and there's not a human being on this earth that has ever accomplished anything close. More than one quarter of the Bible. Ryan, come on back and help me. More than one quarter of the Bible is what we call predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy. About one third of those prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. Both the Old and the New Testament prophesy the second coming of Jesus Christ. In just a few days, we'll gather together as families and friends and we'll celebrate his first coming. But both the Old and New Testament also prophesy his second coming. More than 1,800 Old Testament references, 1,800 in 17 different Old Testament books, more than 1,800 references refer to the second coming. That's the Old Testament. 1,800 times refer to the second coming. 23 out of the 27 New Testament books refer to the second coming. Out of 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are over 300 references to the Lord's return. That's one out of every 30 verses. Please hear me. For every prophecy about the first coming of Jesus Christ. There are eight prophecies 
about his second coming. So we gather at Christmas to celebrate his first coming. But there are eight times as many prophecies that tell us to gather and celebrate and rejoice about his second coming. Our reaction to the second coming should never be one of fear or paranoia because both his first coming to earth and his second coming in the clouds are reason for us to hope and thank God and rejoice. Last scripture, and then we'll sing something here. And when these things, Luke said this, when these things, all these signs, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament, 1,800 Old Testament prophecies, when all these things, eight times as many prophecies about the second coming as about his first coming, when all these things begin to come to pass, don't you dare panic. Don't you dare get paranoid. Don't you dare have fear in your heart. You are a child of God filled with the Holy Ghost. Don't you dare have a panic attack about the second coming. If you can celebrate his first coming, the Bible tells you you should be eight times as happy. There's eight times as many prophecies about his second coming because the Bible wants us to know when you see it start to happen, look up, lift up your head because your redemption is drawing nigh. He came the first time to provide redemption for us, but he's coming the second time to fulfill and complete redemption for us so all this business that we preach and all this business that we celebrate at Christmas, it's just looking forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish you would lift up your voice and lift up your praise and lift up your worship and lift up your prayer to God because we gather on a Bible study and we forget how amazing this is. We forget how astounding this is. We forget how miraculous this is. It's an amazing thing. The prophecy. The prophecy of Christmas. Oh, we'll have the celebration and we'll have the food and we'll have the fun and we'll have all of those facets and all of those attributes and all of those pieces of Christmas. It'll be wonderful. It's such a precious, beautiful time when even the secular world turns their attention to the fact that he came the first time. But only the church keeps in mind the fact that the baby in Bethlehem is coming again. We don't just celebrate his first coming. We celebrate, celebrate his second coming. Oh my. I'm finished. I hope you're not. Would you lift up your hands one more time? Would you give the Lord glory and praise and honor? I, I don't mean a little kind of P.S. on the end of a Bible study. I mean a sincere praise from your heart that you get to be one of the blood-bought, Jesus-named, baptized, spirit-filled people that when he says it's time, you're going in the rapture. You don't have to do anything more. You've already got the Holy Ghost in you that's going to lift you off the ground in the twinkling of an eye. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Oh, his name is wonderful.